You are listening to the Local Hearted Podcast, episode number 17 with glassblower Michael Hatch. Welcome to the Local Hearted Podcast. I'm Meredith Adler, and I am your host. Join me as we get to know the people who create the wide variety of art in Asheville and in the mountain counties of Western North Carolina. We'll also talk with some of the people who create opportunities for our local artists and help them shine. Hey, it's Meredith, and thanks for joining me for another episode of the Local Hearted Podcast. My guest today is Michael Hatch, a glassblower with 30 years of experience. His studio and gallery space is Crucible Glassworks in Weaverville, North Carolina, about 10 minutes north of Asheville. Michael creates both functional and sculptural pieces. His wife, Hillary, handles the logistics of the business freeing Michael to focus on creating his art. Hillary stopped by the studio while Michael and I were recording and said a few words. She was actually not on her own microphone, but hopefully the mics in the room picked her up well enough for you to hear. In this interview, you will hear Michael talk about how exciting the process of creating glasswork is for him, even with so many years under his belt. As a bonus, because Michael serves on the board of the Southern Highland Craft Guild, he generously talks about the jurying process for getting into the guild. Learn why he advises aspiring artists to not give up. And you will hear Michael talk with such high appreciation for the fine work he saw when he served on the jury for the guild. I am honored to present to you Michael Hatch. So, Michael, thank you so much for being with me on Local Hearted today. I'm really excited to talk to you about your work. Well, I'm happy to be here. Thank you. And I usually like to start by letting the artists describe what they do, because I feel like I could do that, but you are the best person to do that. Well, I'm a glassblower, so I work with molten glass. So starting with glass, it's about 2,100 degrees, and the consistency of honey and then transform that into pieces as it cools down shaping it and doing anything from figurative sculptures to blown vessels and kind of all all different kinds of things and how long have you been doing that oh i think it's been about 30 years now oh wow i didn't realize that i started as an elective in college is when i first started blowing glass okay yeah i wondered what inspired you to start because when I think about artists that I've talked about people who are painters or people who draw it's kind of a continuation of what we all do as children but with glass blowing it seems like there has to have been something that got your attention about it I'd always been fascinated by it and um, just even the guys at the mall or at the fair making the pianos and the little ships and that's actually thought I thought what the class I was signing up for was. It was introduction to glassworking, mm-hmm. 
I had no idea and I went in and there was these big furnaces roaring full of molten glass and the teacher made a big piece and I was pretty much hooked then. It was it was really a, a neat process and it was my one art class and it became my permanent elective and that's kind of when I first got hooked on it. Is that when you knew you would want to do it for your career or did that come later? Well, I knew I, I knew it was something that I wanted to do and then after being in school, uh, we moved to Santa Fe, New Mexico and I worked at a studio gallery there and ran the, ran the hot shop, the studio side of it and um, began to learn about the business side of it more and how to actually make, make a living blowing glass. Mm -hmm. So you were running a studio, was that for other artists or was that you were able to do your own work No, that, that was another artist studio okay. and then I was kind of in charge of running the hot shop and then there was a gallery and there was maybe five or six different artists that worked out of the studio. So we'd all work, we'd trade for studio time. So we'd work for the gallery, we'd work making things for the gallery or we'd just work selling, packing whatever needed to be done to keep the place running. Uh -huh. and, um, and in exchange, we'd get studio time and we could sell our work in the gallery. So you, by working, you really learned all aspects of what it takes or what it took back then. Yes, know. and that was kind of helped set up the model of what we do here with the studio and the gallery and people can come in and watch you making things. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's a, it's a neat process. And so people do like to watch it and it does kind of sometimes help sell the work. Mm -hmm. And uh, I saw on your resume, you have quite an extensive resume. I saw on there that you have done also residencies. Yes. And so I just, in between, I had a studio in downtown Asheville for 10 years from 1998 to 2008. Then in between that and starting this studio here, I did a three-year residency at the Energy Exchange in Burnsville, which is the first class studio in the world that was run from methane from a retired landfill. So that, that was interesting. That was a good three-year kind of stint there and a, a chance with the, without having to pay for the gas, it helped cut down expenses and so I was able to really kind of work on some sculptural work and aside from my regular production work. Mm -hmm. The residency gave you a chance to explore different things you wanted to try? Yes, because I have, I'm, I like to, there's so many different things you can do with the material that I like to do all different kinds of things, from sculpting solid masses of glass to sculpting blown things to blowing all different types of shapes. And it's kind of, I think, why still after 30 years I get excited every time I walk into the studio and I get to make work and get to play with molten glass is because there are so many different things. And so, and a lot of times, you know, I get stuck. I have to make work that I can sell and that I know galleries want. And so sometimes, you know, it's hard to set aside the money and the time to be able to... Hello. <laughs> How's it going? Good, how are you? How are you? you are, we are recording, just okay. so you know. You're okay, on great. mic. <laughs> and here comes Hillary to pack up some orders that'll be going out to some different galleries <laughs> yeah. tomorrow. Awesome. Yes, indeed. But so the residency gave me time, a little bit of time and without the overhead of the financial overhead to really explore some of the other ideas 
that I wanted to do that are more sculptural and um, just a little different and, and odd maybe and they have to find their right place in certain galleries but mm -hmm. so the energy exchange I looked at that and are they still existing it looked like maybe they're not no no it, it got the property was bought by Mayland Community College and now they're going to start using that for uh, additional classrooms. I see. Okay. So that was just a very opportune... It, it lasted about 15 years maybe and then there were some issues with the methane flow and you know at some point you do run out of the methane from the landfill and so it was getting to where it was a, it was a hard studio to, to keep running. Oh, I see. <laughs> you know, you get what you pay for and you get free gas, but the methane was very, it fluctuated the amount of combustible methane in the actual, what was being pumped into your gas line. And so things would vary. It was a, it was an interesting situation, but it, it was neat. And it was cool to be able to, you know, reuse the methane and. Yeah, definitely. So what's this setting up a, um, studio of your own what did that involve well I already had a lot of the equipment from my past studio mm -hmm. and uh, so in this case it was finding up finding the land and actually built a building designed around having a for the gallery side is designed as a gallery and the studio side is designed as a glass studio where we get a good ventilation and air moving through that so when it's hot and you know, it, it gets hot in there. You're standing in front of a 2,000 degree oven all day. You want to have good airflow, and so the building was kind of designed around my needs in the gallery and in the studio. Mm -hmm. And did I understand from the video you have on your website that generally the furnace stays on? Is that how you do it? Yes, the furnace, you know, the furnace will be 2,100 degrees, and depending on I have different furnaces. I have a big gas furnace that would take a week to slowly heat up mm -hmm. and then it would stay on 24 hours a day and you'd want to keep it on for two to three months because it doesn't really like heating up and cooling down. And then now I use a, most of the time now I use a small electric kiln that holds a crucible that will hold a, a day's worth of molten glass and I can turn that on and be blowing glass the next day use it for two, four, five days, whatever I want, shut it off for a couple of days, come back, turn it back on and start blowing glass again. So it's, a, it's, that's a nice setup. I can't, I'm not melting as much glass at, at a time and I've had to adjust some of the way I work, but um, it's very affordable and I don't feel that I'm, I'm chained to my furnace, you know, mm -hmm. it, which is, you know, I've been responsible for glass studios for 25, 30 years, and, um, you know, it's going all night. It's 2,000 degrees, and you think about it when you're trying to sleep, and, you know, and mm -hmm. you take a day off, you're still paying for whatever, $50, $75 a day for that thing to run. And so you just feel like you can never take a day off, and you just work, 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 and, you know, it's, it's easy to burn yourself out that way. So this kiln method is a way to relieve some of that. For me, I, for me, it works. I like it. I can get done anything, everything I need to get done, and I can really control how much I work. I can, I can enjoy a day off. Yeah. <laughs> or two. Hey, <laughs> I'm interested in 
having you describe the process a bit more, but first I really would like to ask you what it is that you love so much about what you do. Well, one of the things about glass blowing is it's it's very challenging. It's very immediate for a for a material. It's it's a very immediate material. I can make a piece in fifteen twenty minutes, and it'll be pretty much finished once it cools down overnight. But in that immediacy, in the blink of an eye, everything can go wrong. So it's it's kind of like playing a instrument, playing music, where you. If you want to play a song, you have to play all the parts right. You have to get all your verses in order. Everything has to be done right. And then in this case, my finished piece is kind of like a recording of a song that you made. Mm. Where if you made a mistake, you're going to hear it. If I made a mistake, I'll look at I can tell you what's wrong with every piece in here. And, um, and so there's something about that, the immediacy and this challenge of, and this high level of concentration and short bursts of... You know, you're paying attention to 12 different things at once and temperature control and it's very exciting and, you know, there might even be some kind of endorphin rush. It might be like a runner's high. It might actually be addictive. <laughs> <laughs> you like the intensity because of it. Because there there's, there's something about, about glass that, that is, you know, but in, you know, in the blink of an eye it can all go wrong and you have to be able to to deal with that. That's the hard part. That's where a lot of people can't handle it. Because sometimes things break. You'll lose a piece and it's usually at the end and when you're falling in love with it and oh, I'm going to get $350 for that. That's a sure way to break a piece. <laughs> Think about how much it's going to sell for when it's done. And then you'll just, it'll just fall off the iron right at the end and smash on the floor. <laughs> and you have to be able to just start over and try and learn what went wrong and and move on sounds like you have a relationship with the <laughs> material yeah it's, you know that's that's after all this time that's the way we all get you know you have whatever material it is that you use you have a relationship with it yes yeah so when you have a finished piece that particularly pleases you, are you able to put into words what it would be that would be so satisfactory to you? Um, well, you know, you're dealing with color and form, basically. And so sometimes, you know, different colors, some pieces are based on form, some are based on color patterns. And so, you know, it's nice when you're working on color patterns and they come out just the way you want them to because we add the color during the process early on and usually gather clear glass over it and then blow it out so the color ends up stretching and changing and it won't be the color it's going to be once it finally cools down. So you can't really tell what's going on until it comes out the next morning. Mm -hmm. And you open the oven and you say, what happened yesterday? Because it's all, you know, you've never quite seen, you've never seen it below a thousand degrees. You've never quite seen it. It's just standing up even. And so you come in in the morning, it's, you open it and some days it's like Christmas morning and it's wonderful. And some days it's like Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> and a little scary. <laughs> and then the other part, a lot of it too, is, is with form. And I do a lot of, with different forms and different shapes and sculptural vessels. And, um, 
And so in some of these pieces, I'm trying to capture the fluidity of the molten glass and kind of freeze it in time, which is actually really difficult to get it to have a nat look like a natural flow. And so it's very rewarding when you're doing something like that and it comes out and, and the balance and everything is just, is just right in a piece. Mm -hmm. And there's something rewarding about that. Is it accurate to say, I'm thinking about what you're saying, is it accurate to say that sometimes it's when it meets your vision of what you had hoped for and other times it's when you have that nice Christmas morning surprise? Are you saying both? Yeah, sometimes there's a surprise, you know, and it's, and it's nice when, the, when there is a surprise that, that comes out. Um, a lot of times at this point, I have a pretty good idea of what I want. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll experiment some and play with different things, but usually there's a direction even in my experimentation of, of trying to get someplace. And so when I get there and can, can nail it in a piece, it's, it is rewarding. And then once I get it figured out, I'm usually kind of ready for the next thing. <laughs> and, I'll, and I'll quickly move on to something else, which probably isn't the best in terms of a business model, but that's how I stay interested as an artist. Uh-huh. What do you think you're known for? Oh, well, you know, like you, everybody loves it. Everybody that has a tumbler. <laughs> it's, it's, tells me it's their favorite glass. So there, there's the, the drinkware and, um, you know, I'm kind of known for what I was saying is that I make a lot of different styles of work. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. you can usually tell even with the wide variety, a lot of people can, can still tell it's my work, whether it's um, a realistic shark a comical little guy holding up a peace sign, or even just a, a simple little bud base. You know, there's a certain, mm -hmm. I'm trying to have a certain quality to my work that, that is recognizable at whatever it is. I see with your colors, and I was gonna ask you if you add them to the glass. So I, I understand now from talking to you that the colors are all your doing. Yes, the color. So we start off, there's a bowl full of molten glass and I'll have a five foot hollow metal pipe, a blow pipe, or I can have a solid pipe if I'm sculpting a solid, uh, making a solid sculpture. But so I'll gather some glass. It's like gathering honey. I can only get so much at a time. It's trying to run off. So I'll start off with maybe an, about an egg and then I can gather more glass on top of that and I can keep building up glass until I get the amount I want. And that's, in that, in the furnace, in the crucible, it's all clear glass. And then as I'm building and layering up the clear glass, I can add color in between the layers. Um, most of the time I'll put it on on the second to the last layer by either rolling it in chips of colored glass or crushed up colored glass or powdered glass or combinations of that or, there's different ways to add the color, we, but then we'll, usually encase that in clear, and then start to blow it out into the shape. Okay. And I guess we should mention, you did mention, but let's just say the, the background noises we hear, that is Hillary, Michael's wife, and she's getting some things ready for shipping. 
She's packing up an order that's going to ship to a gallery in Florida, and then um, we're dropping off an order for one of the guild shops uh, up in Blowing Rock at the Moses Cone Manor. Okay. So she's getting two orders together for us. And so Hillary really helps a lot with the business side of it. There, you know, there's there's two sides to being an artist. One thing is m making work, creating things, and the other is actually, if you want to make a living, is you have to be able to sell it. And both of those are full-time jobs. It's it's a lot of work for both of those, and keeping up with galleries and maintaining orders and making sure that they have inventory and that when they're running low that they need to reorder and sometimes you have to check in on them and so she's really good at handling all of that side of the business which frees me up to really focus on on making work and and i and i help with some of the gallery things but she's she's definitely the spirit the manager and spearheading of, of all that side and and then the gallery side she does a great job of you know of displaying all the variety of work that I make, it's hard to <laughs> figure out how to get it all to fit in in a, in a suitable way. And she does a great job of, of moving the sculpture work in and out and changing out what's in the gallery. And, um, and uh, that's a whole art in itself. Yes, so you have various ways that you sell your work. So we sell work out of the studio here and then I do a handful of shows, not a lot of shows, a few craft shows, and then um, sell out of a lot of galleries, have uh, wholesale accounts is usually what I do, and so a gallery will place an order and buy it for half price or whatever, and then resell it. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so yeah, those are the three main ways that we sell the work, and then I teach workshops here too, and sometimes at other places and so that's another way to try and get some income you know as an artist if you want to make a living as an artist you have to really kind of figure out a way to get it's not one thing that's going to provide you all of your money it's lots of little things lots of little bits coming in from different galleries and different shows and different you know and then we'll send stuff out to exhibitions like you know juried art exhibitions at museums and fine galleries and you know sometimes those pieces win an award you get your piece back and you get a you know prize money and some or the piece will sell there or it's a good way that's a lot of my my sculpture work we send out to shows like that so we're trying to hit all these different levels from you know ornaments and tumblers to you know one-of-a-kind sculpture work that's thousands of dollars so it's just trying to get a little bit from everywhere. You want to be diversified and you want to have something to appeal to a wide variety of audiences, it sounds like. Right, and that, by, and by having the, you know, the, the production items, the vases and the bowls and even some of the sculpture things are kind of production items, but, you know, anything from 15 to a $1,000 range is kind of what is, sells out of the galleries mostly and then and allows me with my sculpture work by doing that to really do I do whatever I want when I'm making my sculpture I'll just there's no this is going to sell it's not it's not really about that when I'm doing that work it's just I get to do what I want to do and someone will come across it 
it'll find the right person will find it and that's and it's just things that I want to do to keep keep it interesting for me and it's kind of what I've always done even when I was in New Mexico working at that studio I would work and make production work to make time where I could make sculpture work it's always been about making time to make sculpture okay so the production work is supporting your ability to do your sculpture you're saying yes and without the pressure of oh you know if i make a you know if i make a tree i can sell a tree or you know or mm -hmm. you know my degree in from college is actually in sociology and so a lot of the different sculptural things have to do with social issues and political issues and and it's just things that I want to say. And I don't want to be limited by what I can say with, well, will someone buy that? Mm -hmm. um, do, you you know. want to, do you want to give an example of that, a, a sculpture that has a message? Uh, let's Here's see. The yeah, the little guy with the peace sign. Or just the other day, I made Uncle Sam beating up Donald Trump. Uh, there he is. <laughs> oh, he's up there behind you. There's that guy. That little guy. And that's just kind of a fun little peace sign guy. And then here's and this. Was, <laughs> and so, right, and, and there's a market for that, but who knows what it is. But I got that idea and I wanted to try it. I wanted to do it. And so I did it. And then I have other pieces where I paint with glass pigments, where I'll take powdered glass pigment and I can mix it into paint or an ink. I can draw, I can paint, I can scratch away. So I'll make heads and paint the insides of them. And there'll be a window through the head where you can see imagery that's kind of inside of their head. And those get into things dealing with nuclear physics or nuclear war. Or, um, there's one with a monkey standing at a chalkboard, a golden monkey at a chalkboard that's full of equations with nuclear physics and trajectory physics and little cartoon bomb drawings all on this chalkboard behind him mm. called Monkey Business. And it's all like actual physics equations dealing with all of those things. Or There's the moonshine guy. I had a methane guy that was based on the energy exchange with the whole, the landfill and the pump that brought the gas up and there's a little hippie guy blowing glass in the corner of it and, um, you know and those are they're just kind of fun with those I just kind of do them and then all of a sudden someone sees them and they're like oh my god and they have to have it and, um, and until then I keep a few in the back <laughs> Till it resonates with the right person. Right, and those again are pieces that I send out. Will mm. will apply for exhibitions at different museum shows, and you know, some of those go out and they come back, but they've brought back, you know. Yeah. It's nice when you get. Well, that's the goal. It's nice when you get a thousand dollars and your piece back. The goal is to you make, know. <laughs> the goal is to get towards making what you want to make and have that sell as well. So you're not having to do production really at all where what you love becomes a production. Right. These pieces, the figurative pieces look extremely complex to create. Like, I've seen you make a paperweight. Right? right, you saw me working on that paperweight. And so now if I would have made, 
And so then these I'm making in parts. And I'll make parts and then I'll put the parts in a kiln, right? Because nothing can be below a thousand degrees. If it gets below 900, it will break. Mm. So I'll make the parts like here with Uncle Sam. Mm -hmm. So I made a red, white, and blue hat and I put that in the oven. And then I made Uncle Sam's head and I put the hat on the head and I put that in the oven. And then we made Donald Trump's torso separate from his legs and his head and his arms were all separate. He was in there in one, two, three, four, five pieces. And then I, I made the, the legs of Uncle Sam and picked up Donald Trump's torso. He's got it. You can't see it since we're on a podcast, but he's got a suit on with his red tie. Uncle Sam's got his hand around his throat and about to punch him in the face and they're laying on the ground with uh, Uncle Sam kneeling above him. And so I picked up the torso with the legs, added Donald Trump's legs, added his head, added his arms, and put that back in the oven. And then I made Uncle Sam's torso. And then I picked up that whole, his legs and Donald Trump part. And so then I had it attached at the neck of Uncle Sam with, with everything going on with him, with Donald Trump on the ground leaning over him. And then we attached an iron to Donald Trump's back and broke it off of Uncle Sam's neck and turned the whole piece around. And then I was able to torch and then grab Uncle Sam's head and stick it on top. So that piece I made with a helper and it, it took the better part of a day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sounds like a lot of strategy. That, that, was, that was a lot of thinking it out of how to... Because, you know, it's difficult. One thing is... Well, glass is the only material I know that's trying to get away from you as you're working on it. So you're trying to sculpt something, but it's moving, and then you're pushing it, and the whole thing's moving, not just where you want it to move. And so with this, we're using torches and trying to let things get cold, a thousand degrees, so it's not moving, and using torches to spot heat certain areas and push the glass around and shape it. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and I do some of the, a lot of these component-based sculptures by myself, which is something that I don't know anybody else that is really doing that. So that's part of where you have to really think through the steps of how am I going to put this together? How is this going to work? How am I going to get the... Because as you're heating it with glass, all my detail, if I heat it too long, everything starts softening and you just, you can melt it. Like I could just a little couple seconds too long and it the nose just melts away and so it's a it's a fine line of trying to keep it hot enough where it doesn't break cold enough where you're not melting out all your detail and figuring out at what point to add which parts you know because the hand every one of those fingers is trying to shred you know it's always shrinking every heat they fatten they shrink and fatten up so a lot of times I'm going in and just like pinching that with a metal tool with little tweezers, just kind of cooling it and keeping them kind of stretched out. And so there's, you know, like I was saying, there's always at least 10 to 12 things you're thinking of, if not more, <laughs> at one time of trying to keep track of, of all these different steps. So the point of having a helper, is that to have more hands on board? Is that... It's kind of to have uh, more hands on board or, you know, we're... With this, we're, there's a lot of different colored bits, his hair, his beard, his sleeves, his arms, there's 
a lot of things that we're making that are in different colors that it's just the time it makes things go quicker my assistant can be get it, setting up a color bit or keeping something warm while, while I'm setting up a color bit if I need a specific bit. And so um, most, most glass blowers nowadays work with a helper. Just even with, even with little vases and drinking glasses, they would have, a, in fact, the majority would not work by themselves at all. Mm -hmm. um, they would turn everything off and go home if their assistant didn't show up. Mm -hmm. And um, so, and a lot of from my beginning, the way I learned in college and the way we worked in New Mexico is I, I have learned to work a lot by myself. And I've, I've actually taken that and pushed it to the uttermost limits of almost what you could possibly do by yourself. And um, by using the little kilns, using just adapted versions of techniques and just wanting to be at wanting something so bad that you just make it happen <laughs> you have it's like i'm going to make this happen and when i'm experimenting you know it's this like the uncle sam i worked on making a couple i made uncle's a hat i made a couple trying to get his jacket and his shirt with his little scarf i made a couple of those by myself before I was working with the helper, so I kind of knew, I'd worked out the ideas. Because you can't go back, once it's out of the oven, I can't say, wow, I wish I would have brought that collar out a little bit. There's no, it's, you can't bend it, you can't touch it, you, there's nothing you can do. <laughs> if it gets to a certain degree of cool. Right, once it's cooled it's down, right, I can't say, oh, it'd be nice if his head was up three degrees you know like in ceramics you can come back the next day uncover it and you can kind of tweak it a little bit um you know metalworking or painting you can always come back and do things to it and so that's part of the joy of the immediacy of it but also part of the curse is that you just you've got to get it all right mm-hmm and you have it sounds like you have at times so wanted to be independent and be able to do your work regardless of whether someone was here that you've adapted methods. Yeah, and it's a great way to work out complex ideas and then you can get, I can get a helper in and I've worked out a lot of the problems and so when I'm paying them either with studio time or paying mm -hmm. them financially, um, I'm making the most out of their time because the people that I work with all have their own careers, they're all artists, they all have their own things that they're doing and I, I like having someone who's going to help me, somebody who really knows what they're doing. There needs to be somebody who knows the material and is a good artist in their own right. I don't really need somebody that doesn't know what they're doing, it doesn't really help me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so for me, to, when I get these people in, I need to make the most of their time for both of our sakes. And um, the more interesting it is for them, the more chance next time I call them, oh yeah, yeah, I can get a day or two. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. Have it be mutually beneficial. Yes, yeah. and, and most of the time with, with the helpers, and then I can trade them for studio time, and then they can make work that they'll sell and they get paid a lot more than if I was paying them hourly. Because in an hour, you know, in an hour in the glass studio, you can make a, you know, depending on what you're making, but you can make a hundred to 
$250 worth of work. So you're saying these are people who already know the skills. You're not they already really right. training them. I'm not, and I do have a, a young uh, a high school kid that did a senior project, and I've got him coming in some, and I'm kind of training him a little bit with just helping with some of the small stuff just because mm-hmm. um, he, he's really interested. He's trying to figure out what he's going to do, and, and even though I can't do it by myself, it's, you know, it's easier for just some of the a couple of the steps that I can train him to do with those and mm-hmm. and so we are I'm working on that a little bit but it, it's hard to make my more complicated pieces with somebody who doesn't mm-hmm. have experience and one more thing a question about how you created these I am curious if they start purely as visions in your mind until you see it start to take form or are you sketching them out ahead of time? How do you do that? Sometimes I sketch a little bit. I'm not a very good drawer, but I'll sketch. And and when I'm sketching, I'm kind of a lot of times thinking through the steps. So I'll have a rough sketch of here's the piece that I want to make. I'm going to make a figure. It's going to have a hole where his heart was and there's going to be water pouring out and he's going to be holding his heart in his hand and he's pouring his heart out. And so, and then I'm like, well now, how am I? and so then I'm looking at it and I'm saying, okay, so now how am I going to do this? What are my steps? Where, when do I add the hand? Is the heart already in the hand? You know, how do you get the water flowing down? Mm-hmm. And so as I'm drawing, I'm, I'm kind of thinking through my steps and so my drawings are, are pretty crude sketches but so for you the sketch is something of a road map exactly especially with the more complicated pieces it's it is that and then i know if i have an assistant or if i have two you know some pieces i'll I'll have three people in here helping and who's going to do what this guy's big and burly he can carry it when it's getting heavy this person is good at shaping the bits so when i attach a bit to make a uh, add a feature I know that the glass will be shaped right and the right temperature and that they can set up the color and then you know there'll be the high school kid who can open and close the door to the oven to keep the heat in the oven but mm-hmm. you can fit the piece in you know so you kind of okay who's gonna do what and who you know and if it's a really big heavy piece you want to have two people or aside from me that will take turns Cause you gotta pick it up off the bench and you gotta go stick it in this big furnace. It's 2000 degrees and it's, it's physical, it's hard. And you get a big piece, it's off the end of the iron and it's all you can do if it starts dripping off center to get it flipped back over and not just to drip off onto the floor. And so, you know, if you're gonna get into a piece like that, you have to realize you either need someone with some stamina or a couple people that Preferably, they can break that up a little bit so no one's getting really worn out and everybody can pay attention and not... It just takes one stupid mistake in mm-hmm. a piece. You can spend six hours on a piece and all it takes is one just... And it's usually something you know... You know, there's all, it's all physics, so it's... If you do something wrong, there's a reason. Mm-hmm. And at this point, I should know what... I should know not to do it. <laughs> And so it's just sometimes you, it's good to be able to have someone take, take it away from you for a minute and you can just have a sip of water and be like, okay, what's my next step? What am I doing? How's this going to go? And then um, 
That's just again with the immediacy of the material. That's where being having things thought out and who's going to help and who's going to do what. So it sounds like in addition to creating the piece and knowing how you're going to do it, you are a team leader and you are kind of, it's almost like you're directing a show or a concert. Right, yeah, it's almost, yeah, it's like being a band leader. Right. If you, you know, if you're working with a team, it, you do have to know who's doing what and you have to be able to address it. And, the, you know, and you have, there's different roles. The, the person who's making the piece is called the gaffer. And basically, the gaffer's responsible for everything. Even if the assistant does the stupidest thing ever, it's your fault for asking them to even do that step because they probably weren't ready for it or whatever. Or just, the, you're, you're responsible. It's kind of the bottom line. And some, you know, someone brings a bit that's wrong and you stick it on and it's like, well, you put no, shouldn't have put it on there. You know, they should have brought it right, but the bottom line is you should have, you should have said, no, take it back and we'll fix it. But, um, so yeah, you do have to kind of know how to, to how to work with people and how to, you know, get them to work their best. And, you know, cause I'm counting on assistants really to understand what's going on with the piece, to know what the next steps are. You know, when we're working with a good group of people, we don't even, we're not even talking really about, okay, go heat this up. We're not talking about the steps that we're doing because we know what's coming next. And so if I need somebody to shield me with a paddle, they're there. They know if you're working with people that know what they're doing, then everybody's okay. He's gonna, when he comes back, he's going to want this tool right here where he doesn't have to look. He can just put his hand down here. So, you know, one guy's kind of shuffling your tools around or heating up a tool and putting some wax on it and just, you know, getting everything, just keeping everything mm -hmm. running smooth and making, trying to make it easy because it's such a hard material that trying to figure out all these little things just to try and make it a little easier. <laughs> <laughs> and it sounds like people who really know the craft can anticipate to a degree, but you as the gaffer still feel completely responsible for everything that goes down. You are, and they can anticipate just because you've prepared them or they've worked with you making a similar piece, mm -hmm. but or you've prepared them of this is what's gonna happen, this is where we're going, this is what you're gonna do, this is what I'm gonna do. And sometimes it's things that they're not used to, and I'm like, this is what, the way it's gonna work, and it's gonna happen, and you're gonna do this, and I'm gonna do this, and this is, believe me, it is, you know, and they're like, uh, okay. <laughs> Even if they don't see it. Yeah, and they're like, I'm not, and then they're like, oh, okay, I see, I, I get it now. And so there is a thing where they're anticipating, but there it's also, they don't see the piece in, you know, like I do in my head. And so they, there is a, a bit of discovery with them as we're going along. And, mm -hmm. and sometimes I like to keep them guessing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm starting to get the picture of what you said before about the adrenaline rush. It sounds like there's yes, like and so that it gets very, you know, it, it's exciting. And you mentioned the risk to the piece at all times that something can always go wrong. And uh, from the research I did to prepare, it seems like there are risks involved 
also safety risks. Different yeah, things. as long as the peace makes it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you're dealing with, you know, you're dealing with torches, you're dealing with fires, you're dealing with, you know, our, my cooling oven is 950 degrees. Mm -hmm. That's what I, that's to me cold. Cold is a thousand degrees in here. And so you are dealing with that. There is the heat and, um, you know, people don't usually get burned by the glass. It's glowing orange. It's pretty obvious. It's hot. You pretty do a pretty good job of not touching it. Um, the metal tools, the pipe, you know, that has the glass on it, a certain part of that is really hot. And if you're sitting at the bench and have your leg propped up and all comfortable and cool, and then you roll that pipe back over your knee, you're going to get a big giant mm -hmm. burn there. Um, you know, and or the tools that you're touching the glass with, they're metal tools and you're shaping molten glass and they get hot. And so it's generally the little burns and stuff are usually coming from the the tools and mm -hmm. not as much from the um, from the glass. You need to be aware of where your tools are and which are the hot parts and where the right. people are at all times. It's right, and, and some tools, right, I have a tool, the jacks has kind of got long blades and a little strap handle, metal strap handle. And I can squeeze on that, I'll use that for making lines, I'll use it for opening up the inside of a vessel, I'll use the handle of it as a little paddle to flatten things. And so that's, if I'm using the blades and they get hot and I flip it around, they're, you know, nine inch blades, flip it around to use the handle. Mm -hmm. And if I touch that, mm -hmm. and that's a common one early, the first few years, <laughs> everybody does it. And that's, you know, and so that's kind of a nasty little long skinny burn. And that tool has wax on it. So you get this blister that's got this layer of beeswax over it. Then you want to pick at the wax and oh, it's, yeah. But we're, it's not like a woodworker, or I'm not going to lose a limb, or, mm -hmm. you know, it's not really like that. Mm -hmm. It seems really dangerous. Like people are like, oh my God. And people, <laughs> but it's, yeah. But, um, you know. Also, yeah. it implodes, so it's like when it cools, you always think like it's going to explode or whatever and send fragments of glass everywhere, and that doesn't really happen, mm -hmm. you know, so it's really not as scary as you would imagine. If something is going to go wrong, it'd be more likely to, like, fall in on itself. Fall into, yeah, yeah. yeah. You just drop a little metal pan, and it's like, oh, okay. Right, what makes it break <laughs> if it cools down too quickly is the, the glass conducts heat so poorly that it won't even conduct heat, like, through the wall of this cup. And so the surface area cools quicker than the center of the wall, mm -hmm. and so that it shrinks on itself, and that's what makes it break. I see. And sense. so then my cooling oven has a controller that when I hit go at the end of the day, I'll put everything I make will go in there. It'll be 950 degrees. I'll hit a button and then it'll go four hours to 700 for another four hours to 500 and then shut off. And that allows everything to kind of even out the temperature through the wall of the vessel as it cools down. It stabilizes it. And so the thicker something is, the longer it would have to go through that cycle mm -hmm. because you're trying to allow the surface area and the center to cool at the same rate. And do you do anything, do you need to do anything to protect your eyes? 
Um, yeah, you know, I mean, you you are the one furnace. Is you know, there are little things chipping off and stuff sometimes. So it's good to have eye protection. Mm -hmm. um, it's good to have UV protection and sunglasses, or there's different special glasses you can get too. But you know, you're looking into the the furnace that we reheat in. The glory hole is 2,000 degrees, and so it's it's pretty bright. Probably not real good for your eyes to stare at all day. Um, so. And so. what, I, just from watching you, and people can watch your demo online on your site, the YouTube video, what's the difference between when you're using that furnace and the torch? This is very, you know, me not knowing question. Is that the temperature or is it the torch is more focused or because you go back and forth. And right. So the torch is the torch has more focused heat in a specific area. Mm -hmm. So we just talked about how glass doesn't conduct heat very well, which makes it break. But that's also how I can get, you know, a six inch piece. The bottom is a thousand degrees and the top is two thousand degrees. Mm -hmm. So I can have a thousand degree difference in there and um, and so then there's times when I'm, I'm reheating in the glory hole right I've got a piece on the end of an iron I'm sticking it in a in a furnace through the door and so I can never get the part closer to me closer to the iron hotter than the part furthest away right when I'm sticking it in there it's always that part furthest away from me will always be in the oven I can't get this part and not that part in the oven. And so then I'll use the torch sometimes to balance the heat if I'm trying to heat the area that's closer to the pipe. Um, I'll use the torch sometimes to, and then I have smaller torches I can use to really spot heat an area. Like if I'm sculpting, I'll do that a lot where I can, things won't be moving, I can get just one area hot and you know, pull out the nose or shape the, you know, the eyebrow or start kind of shaping a, a face or whatever it is that I'm, I'm shaping. So the torches allow me just a little more controlled heat in specific areas. Okay. Thank Whereas you. my main reheating oven just is a, I can get the part furthest away from me really hot, but if I'm trying to do anything without getting that too hot, it's hard to get what's behind it hot. So it, it is a control aspect yeah. of it. Okay, thanks. And is there anything else you want to say about your process or your work? Because I have, I do have other things, but I wanted to give you a chance. Um, no, you know, it's just, you know, I'm still just, the process is fascinating. I'm just fascinated mm -hmm. by it. I and, see uh, that. <laughs> yeah. I still after 30 years. And so that's, I don't know. It's, it's just really neat to take something molten and turn it into something solid. And we can encourage people who are listening, if they want to be fascinated by it, to come see you. So could you talk about where your studio slash gallery is and what your website is? Okay, so the website and Facebook and Instagram is everything is going to be Crucible Glassworks. Mm -hmm. And the Crucible is the bowl that we melt the glass in. So that's how we named the studio when we first opened in 1998. So we had the studio down there on Lexington Avenue for 10 years, but now we're in Weaverville. We're right at exit 18 at the north end of Weaverville by the tractor supply 
If you follow Main Street all the way north, it turns into Clark's Chapel Road. Um, 60 Clark's Chapel Road. Yep, yeah, we're at 60 Clark's Chapel Road, right at the head of Clark's Chapel in a nice little board and batten building. And so people are welcome to come by. There's good parking and it's seating. You can come in and watch demos. And we do workshops, anything from make one piece, come in and make one piece, a paperweight or a tumbler, to two hour, to all day workshops, mostly um, private instruction or if uh, someone wants to put together a group for a workshop, but I don't really put together groups of strangers for workshops. It's just easier to do a private lesson for those people. And then, you know, if someone has a family or friends in town, then sometimes they'll come in and do, you know, a four hour thing with four to six of them and everybody kind of has fun. And We're open Tuesday through Saturday, 10 to five each day. Demos are mostly Wednesdays through Saturdays if you want to catch a network. Okay, <laughs> thank you. All right, and one question. <laughs> I cannot resist asking this. You can roll your eyes at me if you want to, but do you have a favorite color combination that you can point to? A favorite color combination? Um, one of my favorites is, we call it silver, blue, and black, where I have a, where I'm mixing colors that have chemical reactions with each other. And I can get a whole range of different effects depending on how I mix the colors and how I layer them. And so there's one color that's a deep red that almost looks black. And then I'll have a cobalt blue, like a transparent blue and green that are, when they make those, they melt it with a silver salt. And then the chemicals that are in the reddish black glass react with the silvers that are in the blue and green glass and you can just get all this really exciting different color patterns and it and it's fun because it changes it looks like cobalt blue glass you roll it and then you roll it in the black and then you'll hit it with the the, the torch you were talking about and that brings the silver out to the surface so then before i make my final gather the whole surface looks like it's chrome it's almost mm. mirrored and then i gather over it and it will turn into like these oceany blues and um, the creamy and and you never quite are sh quite sure what it's gonna do even if you do the same thing to it it can and manipulating it to create different patterns it sometimes they just comes out they just come out all a little different which is you know most of the color patterns I do with my production work I, it's I pretty much know what I'm at this point I've I've developed certain ways of mixing colors and mixing certain colors that I, I kind of know what I'm going to get. Like with these, you know, that's, they're all going to be pretty darn close. Mm -hmm. um, and I can show you when, at, when we're done, I'll show you a few of the pieces that you can see the kind of the variety from the, from the reactive colors. Okay. And then when you send me some photos for the local hearted website, maybe yes. we can include a couple of those so people can see what yep. you're referring to. See what I'm talking about. That would be good. And they could come in and see themselves. That's right. <laughs> come see it in person. So, and the other thing I did want to give you a chance to talk about or ask you about is you are on the board of the Southern Highland Craft Guild. I want to see if you want to talk about what that means to you and what your responsibilities are and anything you want to say about the guild. 
you know, it, it's really an honor to be to be a, a part of the guild in general, even just as a member. I, I'm really honored to be uh, serving on the board right now. Um, it, it, the history of the guild is really another, it's kind of fascinating to me. It was this group of women in the 20s and 30s that had come down into the mountains of North Carolina and they were um, just amazing what they were able to get done and I'm not quite sure how they were able to do it. It's hard to, when you look around here now to get, even get things done but the, the woman who helped start the guild was part of a group that also started Penland School of Crafts and several other kind of and the Weaving, built more weaving that's at the Grove, mm -hmm. Grove Park. Um, that group of women started all of that and um, kind of as a way to help the locals that, you know, were making things basically and living, you know, almost sustenance living. And, you know, it's, hey, I, I could sell that quilt for $50. Somebody give you $50 for my quilt? You know, they they didn't, things that they just knew of what they did for their day-to-day -day life for living. We need quilts, we make quilts. And so then the guild was kind of founded to help those people start earning money. And um, Frances Goodrich, she started the Allen Stand, it was like a little cabin. It was, you know, the first original gallery. They put that thing on a truck in the 30s mm -hmm. and drove it to New York City for the World's Fair. <laughs> oh, didn't you know, know? Yeah, that. no, these were, you know, and, and the, you know, and they are the women that started Penland School of Crafts wouldn't be there. And that was, and the more you delve into it, the more interesting it gets and you realize that there's people that are still in the guild whose, you know, relatives were teaching at the very first handling classes, mm -hmm. teaching chair making. And then there's a guy that's in the guild, I'm next to him, he's about my age, a little bit younger. I think he's seventh generation chair maker. So we just start talking about history. And then last time I was at the guild fair next to him, his dad was there, which was, um, which was really interesting. So I, I started picking his brain of, you know, well what, you know, well if Woody's seventh or, whatever he is, you know, well, what are you? And he knew a lot about the early Penland days because his actually relatives had been the chair makers there and were related to the woman who started Penland. You know, he's like, oh, I looked through the records trying to find, you know, my great, 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 great uncle's name. And, and there it was, you know, and in the pay records and, you know, where it said what he got paid for his class, it said, would not accept money from his cousin. Oh. <laughs> and so these guys are teaching classes for free and they didn't think, it was things, you make chairs because you need chairs. Mm -hmm. You make quilts because you need quilts. You make pottery because you need pottery. And um, so the origins of the guild are really exciting to me. And then that it's lasted through the years and is still a very strong organization actively promoting artists. A lot of the different arts organizations around the country that are promoting artists are, are kind of now just trying to stay afloat themselves. And the artists are kind of there to keep them afloat instead of the other way around. And the guild still is really dedicated to the artists. And it's exciting now, we're going through a lot of big changes, trying to stay, you know, 
trying to stay contemporary while maintaining our history and our, you know, heritage connections. And so it, it's an interesting time. And so we're going through rebranding. We're going through online presence and re, you know, there's a whole lot, a whole new millennials worth of problems that we're, mm-hmm. that we're trying to work through, which is, which is exciting. And, it, and it's, it's a great group of people. The board right now is a good group of people. The staff is really good. It's, you know, everybody's working really hard towards a common goal. And it's, it's neat to be a part of something like that. Mm-hmm. That's great. And what does the process look like to get accepted? Oh, to be accepted into the guild? Mm-hmm. Well, there's a whole, and the best way is to, if you go online, there's, it, it's, it, it's a pretty clear thing, and then we're working right now on a, a very clear sheet of explaining the jury process to get in. So people just understand fully, because a lot of people apply, and you know, maybe about 20% of the people get in a year that apply. So it's, it's, a, it's hard to get in. It's expected that you're at a high level in whatever field it is, that you, whatever medium you work in, you're expected to be, you know, at a, a pretty high level. And so, I mean, the first thing is it, it starts, you send in images and a, you fill out your, your form and you send in images and a small group looks at the images and they decide if they want to see the pieces in person. And then you'd go on to the next step, phase two, which is the object jury where you deliver, either ship or hand deliver five pieces to the folk art center. Tables full of pottery, glass, jewelry. It's all divided by the category and then a jury goes through and there's a media expert for every, for jewelry or glass and they explain the pieces and how they were made and, you know, and then the jury will vote and then you, you have to get a, a high score in craftsmanship and in design. So, you know, in that situation we're looking for unique original designs and just excellent craftsmanship and and it is hard to get in i probably applied four times before i got in you know and a lot of people i know i applied over and over again and and some people apply and they don't get in and they get upset and will never apply again and i don't know but then you'll never get in Wow, that's very generous of you to share that it took you a few times because that could encourage other people to stick with it. And, and that's just, I mean, and that's the hard thing in general. If you want to be an artist and you want to sell your work um, and you want to be in shows and you want to be in guilds and you, you, you're going to get rejected from things. You won't get into everything you apply for. You won't get into every class you apply for. You won't get any of the scholarships you apply for <laughs> or any of the fellow, you know, grants and, you know, you have to, I apply for grants, scholarships, I apply for visiting artists, things that, you know, places where I know I probably won't get it. You know, they're, they've got top international artists in the world and they're looking for five other people to turn their studio over to for a week, but I'll try it. I'll send in an application, mm-hmm. you know, because you never know. You just can't get brought down by rejection letters from shows. You can, it's usually a, it's one to three people, sometimes more than that, that are looking at your work. Most time it's one person. 
a lot of those things. And um, I mean, not for the guild, but when you're applying for shows, it's, you know, they'll have a juror. And so one person didn't like your work, so you're never going to apply to anything again. Right. One you're, person's opinion. Yeah, then you better, yeah, you better work on your typing skills and get an office job because mm -hmm. it's not, that's not, you're not cut out for it. You have to, when I get rejected, I'll send out 10 more things. It's just, you just have to do it. Keep going. Right. I mean, the first time I got rejected from the guild, I opened that letter and I, I was, I was upset. And then the letter right behind it, I opened it, was uh, for a show in Rocky Mount. It was being jurored by the curator of the Renwick Gallery, the Smithsonian Craft Gallery in D.C., like one of the top craft galleries in the country. And I got into that show. And that was the day I realized, well, you know, there's a couple people looking at my work, and if one out of eight's going to like it, I... I guess that that guy, that's who I wanted to like it. And you know, you just, you just have to keep applying. Send it out to at least you, eight then. <laughs> yeah, just keep sending them out. And, yeah. and just not, you know, you, you can't get beat up over it. Because then it'll just, yeah, it'll, you'll, it'll never work. Mm -hmm. Cause you just, that's how you're gonna have to make it is just applying to tons of things. Little bits from everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. That I'm sure will be encouraging to some people who are not as far along the path as you. And you really are seasoned at this and you understand the process and what it takes. So. And it's difficult. Rejection letters are hard. I mean, I still don't like them, but, mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't, you still have to try. You can't win unless you enter. <laughs> okay. <laughs> One question that came up when I was listening to you talk about the jurying process for the guild. I was just curious. At one point you said we. Have you been involved as juror? Yes. I've been on the I was on the standards committee and now I'm the board liaison to the standards committee. Mm -hmm. okay. So What was that like to see all that work and have to make the choices or the vote? I should say. Um, it, 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 actually, it's it's really exciting because uh, there's a lot of amazing work. This last object jury, there was some. It was just some amazing work. Like I had seen the images, and I couldn't wait for the object jury. It was the first time I was like, I cannot wait to see. It was these carved wood and turned. And it was the same thing. A guy that's been doing it his whole life. He can make bowls. He can make. He can turn your normal stuff, but instead he's making like, it's like Cinderella's carriage out of like wood, like all carved and like walnut shell wheels and this big fancy, just completely over the top and using the same techniques that everybody does. So we're making a regular bowl, but somehow able to really, even his bowls were just, like the balance, the symmetry, like I was saying, when sometimes in a piece, you know, when I'm looking for that, you know, it's just, you can tell when someone's been doing it a long time. Mm -hmm. And you get to see, even in those pieces, just everything was right. He's taking it to a different level, you're saying. Right, and so then it's hard sometimes because then there might be somebody next to him that's been turning wood for two years. And Things are still a little thick. They're not 
sure enough to start getting things to moving remove enough material to get things kind of thinner and you know and so and so sometimes it's hard because it's like well <laughs> okay you know and but you just have to try and encourage those people to keep trying and then the the voting there's enough of us where you score it and then it everything adds up so it's not like you're making an ultimate decision on somebody right it's not all um, on your shoulders but i liked hearing the excitement in your voice when you talked about seeing great work i can see that you really appreciate really fine i yeah and i've learned from you know one of the great things of being on the standards this committee is i've learned a lot about all the different materials that i didn't know much about mm -hmm. um you know a lot of people in the arts and crafts have you know went to art school and and you just kind of did you know you're a glass blower but you also took a woodworking class you maybe a metalworking you know you kind of done so you have a little understanding and i kind of missed most of that and by take you know in my sociology classes yes. and uh you know glass was just kind of like a release class where it just didn't matter i could i just it was you know that's kind of what it was a, a free class and um i forget where i was you going. were talking about how you mastering have material oh yeah and so then now being on the standards committee now there's there's a media expert in each you know so every you know they're looking at jewelry and they're telling you exactly what went into making that or a quilt you know i'm not textile arts is pretty far away from glass blowing you know that's that one that's pretty far the the process, the mindset of people that do it, it's, you know, and, um, but now I know how to look, I, I can tell you, I could tell you a good quilt, I could tell you where the loose threads are, I can tell you if it's a, the spacing of the stitching, I know what to look for to see quality in, in that as well, and so, in all of these, you see, you know, because I see, you see it and you're like, wow, that's amazing, Look at that table. That's great. God, I could never make a table. Mm -hmm. But then the wood guy's down looking, and he's like, yeah, well, they didn't do a very good job of finishing it. You look at all those sand marks, and God, look, there's some stain pulled up over here. And, wow, look where this leg comes together. Look at that little gap. That should be snow. You know, all of a sudden, you know, you start learning what to look for, to all recognize. All the little things an expert would see, and it all the rest of us would overlook. Right, and it's kind of a it's kind of nice to be there with experts that, you know, it's people that I know, I respect them, their work is incredible and and you can ask specifically, well what is, what's going on here? Or what you know, and you you can really learn a lot about all the different mediums and which is good to know. Yeah. Well thank you for telling us about that. And I guess the last thing I think I would be remiss if I didn't give you a chance to talk about the benefits to the artist of being part of the guild. Okay, so now the guild does the the Southern Highland Guild Fair. We do that twice a year at the Civic Center. And then we have the two second sales every year right before Christmas at the Folk Art Center. And those are all retail opportunities for artists to do the shows or do the second sale. Then the Guild has a number of galleries which will wholesale and consign some work. So you have several ways to help them sell your work through the galleries or through the shows. 
And then there's just, you know, it's a big group. We're about 900 members. So you get, you get to know a lot of people that are either in your field or in other fields. You can make connections if you need. It, it's a great for networking. And if you're on a track of wanting to do a lot of shows, to travel and doing craft shows, there's a lot of people in the guild that do that, and they've been doing it for a while. And they'll, you know, I wouldn't go, I wouldn't sign up for a show in Florida without talking to a couple of my friends from the guild of, so I'm looking to go to Florida this time of year. There's all these shows, which is, is this one good? What is, you know, and it's so you can figure out like that shows are gonna probably be a waste of time for you, or it might be good, I'm not sure, or, that show's great. If you get in, you should do it. You know, it's... So you, you have a lot of that, too, of just the networking aside from the, um, from the retail things. And then we have, at the Folk Art Center, there's different theme days. There's clay days. There's heritage days. Coming up April 1st will be Glass and Metal Day. So we're going to have jewelers. We're going to have blacksmiths. We're going to have lamp working, like people making pendants and torch working, sculpting. Um, I'm, that's what I'm building a mobile glass furnace today when we're done with this, that's gonna be used at the Folk Art Center for that and for other other events. If, so anybody listening, if you wanna hire a glass blower for your event, uh, check us out, <laughs> crucibleglassworks.com. And um, maybe we could bring the little micro melter to your your space too. So it'll be fun to have this little portable thing. In college we would do it for street fairs or we did it once at the Chrysler Museum. They were having a big glass show and we went and built a furnace for the weekend. We built a little mini furnace and blue glass for the weekend in the front yard of the Chrysler Museum. Um, so it's something I've wanted to kind of do for a while is to have to redo that and so then I figured a so this one's going to be one that's, instead of taking it down at the end of every weekend, it is just going to be a little mobile furnace that I can take wherever and hold like a day's worth of glass. And that's great. Half furnace so, will travel. Half furnace will travel. Yep. Yeah. Which is, you know, and it's fun because it is an exciting process and that's, you know, so it's fun to be able to go and do demos out. I watch people get excited and I, I when I do demos like that I do kind of fun mm -hmm. I'm not just making my regular we'll make ray guns and spit fire out of them and you know I like to do a lot of fire breathing demos <laughs> <laughs> just because it's exciting make it dramatic make it dramatic yes okay well thank you so much for everything that you shared and I just is there anything else I didn't give you a chance to talk about I don't think so. I think that's, you know. About covers it? I think that's about covers it. Okay. And if anybody has any questions, yeah, stop by the shop. I'll be happy to answer them for you. Great. Thank you very much. I really appreciate your time today. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Michael will be demoing at Glass and Metal Day at the Folk Art Center on April 1st, 2017. The event runs from 10 a.m. till 4 p.m. Michael is also part of the Weaverville Art Safari, which this spring will be held Saturday and Sunday, April 29th and 30th, from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m., again in the year 2017. 
or take Michael up on his offer to visit his studio, which is open Tuesdays through Saturdays from 10 to 5, with the most likelihood of seeing him at work from Wednesdays through Saturdays. Check out the show notes for this episode at localhearted.com for links to Michael's sites and examples of his work. And while you are there, if you want to make sure you never miss an episode, please sign up for my mailing list. Thank you again for listening. This is Meredith Adler for the Local Hearted Podcast. And the podcast's theme music, Learning to Fly, is courtesy of and copyrighted by Jamie Noter-Thomas. Thomas.